Um, um, okay, so today's presentation, again, is going to be um, the, the witty title, See, us statisticians can be witty. Um, dancing the sample size limbo with multi-level balls, how low can you go? Um, although I'm doing the presentation, I couldn't, um, all the work has done been collaborative. Um, so my research team members are Grant Morgan, who's actually here. He's a doctoral student in EDRM, along with Jason, who is, um, lives in Charlotte, and then Jeff Cromery and John Barron. So um, I'm presenting, but it's always been a collaborative effort. And um, the title was um, actually halfway inspired by Grant. <laughs> <coughs> So just as a brief introduction, multi-level modeling is definitely not new anymore. Um, it, but it's still within the statistical world, but I, we would say uh, still um, developing. Every day we're continuing to try to better understand the nature of the models, especially as it's expanding into different areas. More people are wanting to use them under different conditions. And we don't know that much about the real world conditions that we could say cause messy models. And in particular, sample size is a real issue with multi-level modeling. So there's, everyone's probably heard the rule of thumb <clears throat> that is often cited saying you need at least 30 units at each level. So 30 kids in 30 schools or 30 patients from 30 clinics. Um, <clears throat> and then there's been another rule of thumb that's often cited saying you need 20 people and 50 level two units if you want to do cross-level interactions. Those are the most commonly cited rules of thumb. And although we all want to meet those guidelines when we're doing real research, that's not always necessarily a reality. For example, sometimes it's an issue of um, time and money when we're collecting our own data. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money to get, say, a school or a clinic on board. And so we, are, we cut ourselves short and reaching um, 30 level twos. We might get 10. But once we get those 10, we have lots and lots of level one. We have lots of um, kids or patients nested within our level twos. But it's hard to get that 30-30 balance. <clears throat> the other side where we, so this is the first bullet is the first half of my presentation. The second bullet is the second half of my presentation. When you have um, secondary databases, that like to look at neighborhoods, often we'll have lots and lots of neighborhoods, but we have one or two or three participants per neighborhood. So we, we call those um, sparse data structures or singletons when you just have one observation in a, a higher unit. And um, a lot of the national databases, that uh, sociological databases, that's the um, problem that they encounter there. So, <clears throat> We have these sample size issues. It's hard to meet those 30-30s. And even more so, the problem with previous existing research, simulation research on sample sizes, is for the most part, it's all been done with really simple, unrealistic models. Most simulation research, including the research that was done that came up with the 30-30 rule, had one um, level one, or one X, um, one Z, one level two, and an XZ cross-level interaction. That's it. I don't know, I'm an applied researcher as well as doing my statistical research and I've never actually seen a published paper where you just have one predictor at each level. So <laughs> um, it's not really informative to the, the types of models applied researchers would run. So that's the last bullet. We really don't know what's going on with sample sizes and what I like to say real world models, the things with more predictors and more types of interactions. So that's the purpose of my study, or this presentation. It's actually the combination of two studies that have been recently been conducted, 
um, <clears throat> and that we look at the consequences of level one and level two sample sizes um, and how that impacts our conversions rates, our statistical bias, um, our confidence interval accuracy, our type one error control, and our statistical power. For those that may be somewhat new to simulation research, um, the one fun part is we can test these things because we control the truth. We generate data where we know what the population values are and then we test how well our statistics are matching what is the truth. So that's kind of the fun about simulation research. <clears throat> so the first study. The first study is um, the one that inspired the this, this sample size um, title, How Low Can You Go? So we, these are what we call design factors. I'm going to actually learn to use my pointer. Yes. <laughs> so we, at level one, we had three conditions. Um, we had it so there were 5 to 10, 10 to 20, and 20 to 40 units at level one. And then we had those nested within 10 level twos, 20 level twos, and 30 level twos. Then we also controlled the, how what the variance was of the intercept, what the slope variances were, how correlated the variables were at the different levels. And then we ran models that still are relatively simple. We had um, two uh, level one variables and three, and then two and three, and then we crossed those. And then we ran those variable combinations in a main effect model, a cross-level interaction model, a model with a level one interaction, and a model with a level two interaction. So that's getting the more complex models, more of like what we see. And the other very key thing here is that we actually have a binary variable at level one and level two, and our cross-level interaction is consists of our binary variables. That has not existed in any other research on sample sizes. But our var continuous variables are normally distributed. So again, a limitation. <laughs> so when you cross all those factors, you get nine sample size conditions and um, 1152 design factors, which yields, we ran 10,368 conditions. Um, and we simulated that the, each of those 10,368 conditions a thousand times using SAS. So we have these huge data files that we've just now generated. And after we de generate each data set, we um, analyze it using a two-level, multi-level model with Remmel estimation and the Kenwood Roger degrees of freedom. That's a specialized degrees of freedom that was established for small sample size estimation. And from previous work, we saw that this works the best out of the four degrees of freedom methods in SAS. And then in all models, the intercept and the level one co uh, coefficients were varied randomly, but they had no covariance. So it's called the variance components model. So what did we find? Well, <clears throat> to figure out where to focus, we actually look, we run an ANOVA to end um, to see which one of those design factors was helping explain for the most variability in our outcomes. And um, luckily, model complexity wasn't an issue. So that's actually good news. So th we're seeing the same patterns, the, even the most complex model, that was not a driving force. What was a driving force was level two sample size, tended to be the most important factor, and occasionally the slope variances. So given that this talk and the whole point of the research was on that level one, level two sample size, we tend to I'm going to present the results basically viewed that way. So in terms of model convergence, not really problematic. Most of our models converged, actually. 96.75% um, of them converged 100%. And of the conditions that didn't converge, um, we did have some really low ones. So right here, we had some conditions that were only converging 3.8% of the time. 
So we dug a little deeper to try to figure out what was going on. And that revealed that all of these conditions that models that only converge 3.8% of the time were, um, had three level one and three level two predictors. So what we would say one of our more complicated models with small sample sizes. And then um, in particular, <coughs> uh, they had convergence problems when they had cross uh, level collinearity and level two collinearity and all level three or level one collinearity values. So that is the, in terms of model convergence, there were a handful of times when that just wasn't working well, but overall it still only occurred um, a handful of times. So model convergence is not really too bad of an issue. Statistical bias, fine. Our point estimates matched what we generate in the population. So we're not biased in the um, magnitude of our parameter estimates if you were running this in the, the applied world. And our type 1 error control actually surprised us. It's very, very well under control. <clears throat> you can see on average, we're making type 1 error 0.046% of the time. So if anything, we were being conservative, not liberal. Confidence interval coverage, which follows from type 1 error control, was also very well controlled. Um, the majority of the time, we were at the nominal 95% or um, greater. So we don't consider that to be problematic, which is a good thing. So now we get to thumb pictures. That's what it's all about here. So you can see the blue um, box plots are the binary variables, and the red ones continuously for all these slides will be the continuous variables. And so you can see within the main effect model, um, everything actually across all the model types, main effect, level one, interaction level two, and cross-level interaction, <coughs> we're actually being um, conservative in our estimation. So it's better to some to be, say be conservative versus so um, the averages are all above um, the 95% confidence. So that was um, this is a surprising finding for us. And except for this binary guy right here where the average is just below 95%, again, all of these are performing at the desired level of that. We're saying we're covering 95% of time and 95% of the conditions we're capturing the population value. So what did we find that was interesting? Statistical power. Statistical power with small sample sizes overall sucks. <laughs> That's just the way. So, you, so it depends on where you fall. So if, you, if you're more concerned about your type 1 error, we're, we're seeing good things. And we're saying it's okay, you're, you can get away with some of these smaller sample sizes under these data, sorts of data conditions. But if you're more concerned on statistical power, um, you're not really hitting it very well. So the pictures, again, show it all. So this <laughs> looks a little busy. But right here, where you see this, every time you see a 1 before the underscore, that's a sample, level 1 sample size of 5 to 10, the, the guys over here. Every time you see a 2, it's a level 1 sample size of 10 to 20. Every time you see a 3. So right here, this bottom corner, this is our largest sample size condition. It's 20 to 40 level 1 units nested within 30 level 2 units. So this is the closest to that rule of thumb of 30 and 30. And you can see here, these are level 1 predictors only. We're just a scooch above the desired 0.80. And all these smaller ones here, when you have 5 to 10 units nested within 10 level 2s, wow. Um, you've pretty much underpowered. And you, as we would expect, it goes up as our sample sizes go up. But right, the largest condition is the only time where we get, on average, the desired power of 0.80. And that's level one. 
So not horrible, yet these are level two predictors. Your power never gets to 0.80 even when you have 20 to 40 level ones and um, 30 higher level two units. So <clears throat> you're, you have power to, to make the correct decision at level one, but you're never, you're never reaching that power unless you had a very large effect size um, present. So again, you can see the binary variables are performing worse than the continuous variables, which is what we'd expect. <clears throat> and, but even the continuous variables are not, not performing up to par in terms of power. And then this is what was interesting. This is the cross-level interaction between two binary variables, which has never been studied before. And again, it never, it, not one time, not one model in the conditions that we looked at, those 10,368, did we hit enough power in detecting, making the right decision with our cross-level interaction. So this is, what we, this is our favorite graph <laughs> because nobody's done it before. <laughs> No, and it's just interesting because most people that do multi-level modeling do one, do usually do at least one cross-level interaction. And this is a cross-level interaction with binary variables. So, are you guys with me so far? Kind of, sort of, hopefully. Okay, so that's the overall summary of the first study. And at the end of my presentation, there's um, a reference, that paper will actually be out in April after it's presented at the SAS Global Forum in Seattle. So that's the most recent study I've done, um, and that paper's not out yet, but it will be available. You can Google the title after April, and it's free online. Um, when you Google it, SAS has the proceedings available for free. The second study, um, I have a link that's already available online because it's um, a proceedings paper from 2008. So the, the second study, you can actually read in more detail. Or you can email me. I can give you both of them. Um, the second study was more concerned about that second bullet, about when you have lots of level two units, but you have few people within each of those units. So <clears throat> the focus here is what I call the proportionate singletons. So we ran it where we had 50, say 50 neighborhoods, 100 neighborhoods, 200 neighborhoods, and 500 neighborhoods. When I simulate data, I always think of an applied world, and I actually will call them neighborhoods when I write about it, or schools. Um, I think it's easier for people to follow instead of just saying arbitrarily level one, level two. And the focus of this study was the impact of how much, if you have no singletons, 10%, 30, 15, 70% singletons. Um, and this is inspired actually from the ad health data because I use that for my dissertation, and there were many neighborhoods that data has 2,000 plus neighborhoods of which almost 50% have one kid in them. And so we were wondering, well, can we estimate, can we use them, are, the, you know, are these data good to use to answer our research questions? So here we had um, what we called small and large level ones, an average of 10 and 50. We got more comp uh, complex in our variables here. We had models that had two, three, and five level one variables and one, two, and four level two variables, but this time they were all continuous. And we crossed those to run uh, main effects and just cross-level interaction models. Um, so again, the focus for this study is right here, the proportion of singletons. But just so everyone can kind of understand what this means, using those design factors, it ends up making 5,760 conditions, so about half as many as I ran um, from the previous study. And again, just use it in SAS, and all the data were generated, so it was the slopes and the intercept were 
random. And this time we analyzed it, but we used the containment method, which is the default method uh, for the degrees of freedom in ProcMix and SAS. And we used an unstructured um, variance-covariance matrix. So that's a more complicated variance estimation process than the, the previous uh, study that I talked about. And we had, again, no problems with model convergence. Um, and uh, overall, no design factor. Again, model complexity, that's been one of the things I've added to the literature. Model complexity in this study as well did not didn't appear, the results were not impacted whether you had a simple model or a complex model. So again, that's good news for an applied researcher. Um, we can start making, start to start making generalizations. We can't make conclusive statements, but we can get a little bit closer to saying you have a little bit of wiggle room um, if you don't have ideal samples. Um, so again, model convergence, more than 98% of the models converge without a problem. And um, the highest rate of convergence uh, was less than 1% of the simulated samples. So 99% of our samples conditions converge without problems. And again, statistical bias was very low. I couldn't put the mean on here because it was eight point something something raised to the negative 10. So it was just, <laughs> it, was, it was so much smaller than zero that um, I decided, I don't like it when the mean is zero because it doesn't really tell you much, so I prefer to put the min and the max. So again, our bias was not off very bad at all. So that's good. Um, Type 1 error rate, um, it tended to be um, close to the nominal alpha across both fixed and random effects. So that was um, good. And uh, when we had 500, like, say, neighborhoods, the proportion of singletons really had no impact. Um, but when we had only 50, we did see a slight difference, but really nothing that bad. So these graphs, if you just draw a line, this first side of the graph is the type 1 error rate by proportion of singletons when you had 50 um, like neighborhoods. And then here, then you had 500. So you can see here, there's very much less variability. Whether you have no singletons or 70% singletons, your type 1 error rate's about the same. Um, but here you can see it goes down just a little. But again, it's going down in the direction that's making us conservative. So, um, you're a big type one error person, type one error rate person. You're at least um, going below, and you're not being too liberal in your in your decisions. So this wow, I went really fast. So the statistical power um, it tended to exceed uh, the 0 0.80 across. So power was not a, a big issue, although we did see some variability again with this, when you only had 50 level two units, if 70% of those 50 only had one person in them, your power sometimes got down to almost zero. But for the most part, it stayed up here where it should have. And again, for um, when you had 500 neighborhoods, we just saw no difference in the power. Even if you had 70% of those 500 only had one, one kid or one adult living in those neighborhoods. Um, the confidence interval coverage, again, it had uh, the portion singles had notable effect on the fixed effects for the level one predictors, but we did see it, uh, an impact for level two predictors um, with smaller sample sizes. But uh, to, this was an interesting, to look at that, we actually went to Bradley's liberal criterion for robustness, which basically is we looked at 
how often were we, okay, let's give ourselves some wiggle room. What was the proportion of times when we were close to 0.95? So we went down to 0.925 up to 0.975. So it gave cushions on, on either side. And the pictures you can see. Again, we call these W. So these are the four level two variables. Regard when we had 500 neighborhoods, you could see almost 100% of the time they fell between 0.925 and 0.975. So not a problem. But here, this was pretty much the only thing we found in this study. If you only had 50 neighborhoods or 50 clinics, um, and if you had 70% of those had only one observation in it, um, your confidence interval coverage is pretty atrocious. Um, it plummets. So you're pretty. So here we're saying mm, about 95% of the conditions are falling between that 0.925 and 0.975. It's still staying stable when you have 30% of them have singletons. You're dripping. You're dipping a little, but then when you get down here, you're pretty much um, not have you don't know coverage. So. 95. So we use the the we use Bradley's cutoff of there. I if you see something that I missed, said that I, I, I think. Yeah, the the level. T yeah. So here is the only. Because when we looked at them with just regular rock spots, we weren't, we could tell that there was some pattern going on, but we couldn't figure out exactly where the, the, the drop off was. That's why we went to this. Honestly, I have to say, this, when I did this study, I started this, this was published in 2008. I started this when I was still back as a student, and Bradley's criterion was something new to me. I was introduced to it that day. <laughs> so um, I learned during that. So again, and this is just for level two variables. We did not see this pattern with level one variables. We're never impacted. Your confidence interval coverage stayed consistent. So for those that don't, I, I am in the College of Public Health. Um, I don't know how often we talk about confidence intervals in public health anymore. Um, if you flip that, it's, it, it's analogous to your type one error. So if you're covering 95% of the time, it means you're keeping your type one error close to that 0.05, that magical alpha level. So if you think of it that way, it's not until this really bad, well, it starts dropping off here. You're making some mistakes, but you're staying relatively stable. And this is also, you really wouldn't have much data if you had 50 clinics and 70% of them only had one patient in it. I mean, that's just not a lot of data to begin with. Um, we were surprised that, we were, that these models were converging. That was one of our questions was, are these models even going to converge? Because we did have a complicated variance structure, because we had covariances as well, which is one of the more complicated variance structures you can have. And you actually converge, but you don't necessarily make the best decisions. So what do we know? Um, from study one, um, after we looked at those 10,368 conditions, we are, found that the two aspects of our model complexity in terms of the number of predictors and the type of models, um, and also the correlation among predictors, it didn't impact our findings. So this is a good thing. It's moving the field forward. And these are things that nobody else is really looking at. So we're saying, OK, well, some of the things we're seeing in the literature are holding up even under these more complex model conditions. That's a good thing, that we're happy about that. Um, and what we did see, as we expected, sample size and power were the most related and the biggest issue. 
So like I said, in line with previous studies, um, statistical bias and model convergence, that other studies have shown when you have small sample sizes, that's really not a concern. We're not biasing our result, our parameter estimates to the magnitude, and models are converging. Again, I already mentioned we were surprised that we had such good coverage, relatively decent coverage with type 1 error rates, um, but the power is less encouraging. Um, and that commonly cited rule of 30-30 would not yield high levels of statistical power, especially for level two variables. Oh, what did I just do? Oops. <laughs> um, high levels of statistical power unless there were really large effect size present. We ran this with pretty modest, small effect sizes. Um, so we're not gonna say it would never happen, but it's highly improbable that you're gonna have enough power. But in summary, for the applied researcher, um, the, this is starting to give valuable information that if your data kind of look like our data in terms of the level of collinearity that we had and the, the variances um, in the slopes, which we don't always know are true, but if it looks similar, um, you could probably um, do okay running some models with smaller sample sizes. But the biggest caveat that this is my thing that I really stress about being both in the applied world and the methodological world is that backwards. This right here, that our findings don't generalize beyond those design factors on about slide five. So um, it's closer to the nature of real world data, but everybody's study is gonna be slightly different. So it's not a hard, fast rule. And that's something I think people miss when they read results from simulations. But nonetheless, we're um, in conjunction with other studies. I think that researchers can start moving more confidently in the area of doing multi-level model with small sample sizes across different model types and have confidence in your type one error and your um, stati no, little statistical bias in your fixed effects. From study two, the biggest thing from that was that we were saying that go ahead, if you have 500 neighborhoods and you have a bunch of singletons, you're okay. Um, so that's promising for the applied researcher that don't feel guilty that you've been running these models and maybe you shouldn't have. We haven't found reason that you should avoid using um, when you have high numbers of level twos, even if you only have one person in them. 70% of the units have one person in them, you're still okay. Um, and um, yeah, just it, it did impact if you have small level twos, but again, you, then you really don't have much of a data set. That's what I was kind of thinking in my head. So. Switch over. At what level do you have to have? You, know, you said 50 is no good, 500 is good. Where it stayed, uh, 50 was the worst, the 100, 200, and so everything out of 100 and above stayed pretty decent. So if it, remember, the focus on that was you have 100 units, but you don't have very many things in, in any of those units. Um, that was the, the focus there. Um, and in terms of model complexity, with that study, um, we went up to, you know, I think it was two, three, and five, and one, three, and four. We had much larger variables, so I mean, five and four, so that's much more like a realistic model. Um, I think we chose those because that was, I think, what my dissertation did have in it. Um, <laughs> uh, but again, the caveat to all these two is all of our variables are normally distributed continuous variables, which, um, I'm sorry, that never happens with real-world data. But if you believe in central limit theorem, it should be okay. But um, 
so that is a caveat. And so one of the other where all of my research leads to is, you know, when, when we're violating our assumptions of um, uh, independence, well, not independence, but normally distributed variables and um, different variance structures and stuff like that, do they still hold up? And again, um, you could always just, eventually my university website will have all these that are publicly available, but it's not ready yet. But um, if you remember the, the SNASD uh, title, if you Google that after April, um, it will, you'll eventually get to the SAS proceedings paper, which is publicly available. Um, and here's the link to the um, joint statistical meetings proceedings, or you could just email me if you want more information, because I know it's a lot to digest in um, 30 minutes, and I talk really fast. But, yeah. Sorry about that. Questions? That's my next study. <laughs> that as I was putting, no, that's funny, as I was putting this paper together over this presentation and pulling, you know, we have these different studies and too often um, uh, somebody that's taking a class, a professor, he said, well, we have seven raters and then they're looking, at, each raider would have rated three or 400 kids. And I said, I'm gonna guess that you're still gonna be underpowered because the power in the multi-level modeling is really driven by level two, but I don't know about, so I'm pretty, I feel confident I'd say power is still gonna be a big issue, but about type one error and stuff like that, I, I haven't looked at it yet. That's actually the next study because what I'm finding is that's what more and more people are, those are situations you're getting the five schools um, and you're having access to all the kids in those schools, but you can't get the 10 schools or you can't get more schools. So that is actually, um, I've made a note to, to that's going to be one of the upcoming studies. It's an important question. Uh huh. No, we just were trying, we kind of sliced and diced just to try to figure out when we, we, we looked at convergence rate, you know, we just kept track of whether it converged or not, and then we looked at the convergence rates. And then all of a sudden we saw that there were these 240 conditions, so a very small number that converged only 3.8% of the time, and we were like, what is going on? And those were just some of the characteristics. We haven't drilled much deeper than that. We just noticed, okay, it's in our, most complicated model, three variables at each level, and they all of them had those characteristics, but we hadn't dug much deeper yet. Um, and we don't want to harp on it too much because it still was only a very small proportion of our 10,000 <laughs> conditions, so. Question? Um, I, uh, I also used the FHAS data. Mm -hmm. I'm not a person who did data analysis. Um, we, we did a, um, you know, some census census tract, mm -hmm. I think in that house we have like a London, 1900 mm -hmm. census tract. And then, but for certain variable which we're interested, you know, maybe that census, about 10 or 20% of the census tract only have one person in every class. And then we, the census tract information is aggregated based on individual. You know, like, you know, if you have- So there's no variance. You get an average 10 people. 
people with a transgender sensitive child. So do you see any massive problems on this type of you know, uh, analysis with the 10 to 20% of the sensitive class, only one people there, you know, it's just one person with a sensitive class? No, that's what we sim that's how we simulated that. So it, so when there was 30% of our 500 tracks only had one person but this other 70% was averaged between 10 or 50. Um, the only limitation is is the reason that we're, the models are converging is because we're, we're, what's going on is it's pulling the variance it's pu it's pooled variance and so it's it's able to the variance is, there's no variance in that track because there's only one person. There's no variability, but it's, it, it works in conjunction with the variability of the other tracks, and it works well enough that it actually the models do converge. Um, and w what we're seeing is that the bi it's not even biasing the estimates. Okay. So we're seeing that it's hopeful. So then the table we can No, you, you there's there's you can you can read this full paper. There's another version of this where we misspecified the models. And we still, so we generated the data to be random, but we modeled it to be fixed. Um, so that's a common thing. People want to make their models more parsimonious when they don't, when they have sparse data structures. So I have two papers on that area. And then there's two papers, Clark and Wheaton 2007, and then Clark 2008, which are in my, cited in my paper. Those are about the four papers that have looked at this specific issue of single, uh, when you have 200, 500, and we have now, granted, we didn't simulate 1,900, but you can say, well, it's at least promising when we're up to 500. Um, so, you, you know, but there's no hard, fast rule. Um, it, you can say, we, we think, as long as the model's converging, you, I think that you can have more confidence, but yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. We don't know yet. <laughs> that we have, a, we know that's beyond 30-30. Um, that's all we know. So it could be 40-30. We we just know that. Which one's more important? Issue? Uh, level two, because at level one we had good power. So it was level two variables at level two were underpowered. So um, multi-level modeling, what we know is level two is much more important than level one. Um, if you had more time to, if we, you looked at it, I mean, I can go to the slides. You have um, this level. So with level one here, um, these are level one and it hits up here. It, it approaches the desired 80% or 0.80 for power. But um, if you go to level two, level two, it, it, the rate of change is not if you could have these side by side, you could see that level two doesn't even increase nearly at the same rate as level one power does. So um, it's always the rule that we've always said since they started multi-level modeling is the more level twos is always going to be better. Do your best to get as many level twos as you can. But what we're trying to see is how low can you go? At what point can you can you get away? Can you do something where you only have um, ten level twos? Well, in terms of type one error, yeah, you can. This, this really shocked us. We double, triple checked our code because we were very surprised by this going, what's going on. Um, but um, in terms of power, no. So, so what happens if you're underpowered? Well, you're in a way, you're just making a conservative 
you're, you're missing something that might exist, but you're not saying something exists that doesn't exist. So if anything, you're making conservative, st conclusive statements. That's how my one friend who wanted to justify getting away with small level twos justified. I think it's fine. Any other questions? Um, I, I, I teach the stat, the uh, stat one, stat two, so equivalent to bias statistics. I think it's, what is it, 757 and? Is that cover multi-level analysis? But what? Which class cover multi-level analysis? Oh, that's a whole nother class. That's our yeah. HLM class. I'll be teaching that two years from now. So it's, we offer it every other spring. Okay. So I'll be doing that spring of 2012. It'll just be, it's called, oh, uh, what is it, 812, eight, eight EDRM 812. And I hope to be offering a next spring a class, doesn't have a call number yet, because we're still finalizing that, a class on um, using complex sample to not, like add health databases. Um, I hope to be offering a class of that for on that in next spring. Other than that, I'm good old stat one, stat two. Which I have several of my students in here, so that's good. Other questions? Well, I was thinking that several of the people in this room might be interested in learning about the stats for these groups. Oh, the, um, this or my other one, my, the one that I, yeah. oh, another thing that is on my university website, so if you just Googled my name or if you went to ed.sc.edu slash bell, is a SAS, and you, you know SAS, I have, we've developed um, a macro out there that um, tests um, the assumptions level, your, your homogeneity variance and your normality assumptions um, for level one and level two. It creates oodles of data, um, <laughs> a whole, whole bunch. I wish if I had, I had my laptop, I could have showed it really fast. Um, it creates a lot of box plots. Um, it actually does multivariate um, normality tests. Um, and this is something that was inspired partly from my dissertation and not knowing how to test my assumptions properly because it's um, a convoluted way to do it. But most people in the, that publish multi-level model research never talk about their assumptions. And so one can probably safely deduct that they didn't assess those <laughs> assumptions. And so we're trying to make it more user-friendly because within SAS, there's no easy way to test the assumptions at level two. That's the novelty. We've actually never, nobody else has been talking about that, um, but we've, We've written all the code, it just plugs in and, and generates. And there's one student, um, a school psychology student, that's actually used it for her dissertation. So I know it works <laughs> outside of us testing it. But um, and an updated version of that code will be uh, online at the end of April as well because we, we added even more, um, which will be presented at the SAS conference again. And I'll also put the papers that correspond with the code. Um, the code has notes in it, but there's also a very lengthy paper that explains what the different pieces of the output are. But um, that was a lot of fun. That was last summer's project. But so, um, but again, it only works in SAS <laughs> in two-level models. So and the three-level models is a place we need to go, but that's another beast. <laughs> and other questions? I only use SAS. There's, I haven't found anything that, the only thing that SAS cannot do that I know HLM software can do is 
if you do a cross-classified random effects model with a binary outcome. Proc NL mix cannot do that, but HLM can do that. So that's the only model type so far that I found that um, SAS can't handle that, um, that I know HLM can and MLWIN probably can. MLWIN can handle much, and, and MLWIN can handle, I think, four-level models. I think SAS stops at three-level models. But for what students are gonna do, I haven't ever found anything that they couldn't handle. And I pretty much live in this world. This is <laughs> where I like to be. Angela? Where's Mateo when we need him? Um, that piggybacks on Mateo. I didn't make Mateo's talk, but I think that was part of his talk of last spring, right? I, does anyone? Um, with neighborhoods in particular, there's a lot of discussion and controversy over that, that particular issue because technically, and I, I, I'm going to paraphrase Mateo as best I can, but if I bastardize it, I apologize. But he and I had a nice discussion once about Realistically, it's about research design and random selection of your level two units. And, um, and um, so if it, just because you have data at a higher level does not automatically mean that it's a nested design. It's about um, the random selection of and how those people are also getting into those nested units. So at the neighborhood level, there's that question of, well, is it random or does it take on the attribute? And I always err on the side of doing multi-level modeling could only be a little bit better in terms of your standard errors. So I don't. I I would err on the side of going more towards the nested approach um, because there is that correlation because people that are in the same neighborhoods tend to stay, share character characteristics and it, it will it can inflate your your standard errors. But there is. There's no answer, Angel. I mean, we, it, it really depends on, it also depends on the, the, the approach you're taking in your research question because when you don't do it as multi-level model, we just call contextual data analysis. And that's okay, and people are still doing contextual data analysis. So I really think a lot of it is your paradigm and your, your, the framework where people are coming from. That's a good question. I wasn't prepared for that, but I'm sure I know I didn't answer it. But that's one of those where I could just—it depends, and we love saying that in the statistical world. It depends, um, and I think a lot of it is paradigm where you're, how people are trained, and theoretically, do you think it is a, a, something that is a higher order influence, or does it become an attribute? And with neighborhoods, that's really, I think, one of the hardest things to to untangle because. Um, there's such a reciprocal relationship between people and where they live. Um, so I don't think that we know the answer to that. Um, this, this one, we did not, we didn't control the ICC. Oh yeah, well, no, this one, our slope variant, uh, we didn't calculate full ICCs, but we had, um, they're pretty modest. We had are um, intercept variance of 0.1 and 0.3. So those are, those if you calculate them out are pretty modest ICCs. But the other study, we actually, 
we did point, 0 0.05, 0 0.15, and 0 0.3. So um, I, I usually see ICCs between these two smaller levels. Um, in particular, my, which still has not been published, and I'm sure I'm going to have trouble getting it published in Ad Health, my dissertation, the ICC for BMI <laughs> was 0 0.008. So I got models that explained 88% of less than 1% of variability between schools. And I did cross-classified models, so I, had, I got to build in school variation and neighborhood variation. And in those data, it's just those data were collected before the real epidemic was, you know, those, you have to, those data were collected in the early 90s. And that was not before kids were overweight, but uh, this sample is just not a lot of variation. So. Um, but I, I tend to, we tended to model the 0.05.1 because that tends to be more of the public health sociological ICCs. Education, you'll sometimes get 0.15 because kids are so closely ingrained in the schools. Yes, the, yeah, these definitely don't apply. The longitudinal simulations is a whole nother element on my, on my ever-growing list too. No, th these, these, um, these findings absolutely are restricted to what I call organizational models or nested models, not, not growth models. That's, and we know even less about those, unfortunately. Because uh, Katrina, who does lots of growth models, is always asking me, what do you think? I'm like, well, um, let's study that. So yeah, the ICC could, could impact it. Good question. Anything else? Well, I'm glad I left time for questions. So. And if anyone ever has questions or wants to read it or wants, needs some help thinking about their models, um, just across the street, literally. So thank you for coming.